Welcome, guys, back to the Grateful Living Podcast. Today, I'm thankful to have Chris Ye with me. Chris is a venture capitalist, entrepreneur, investor, father, and author. As a venture capitalist, Chris is a partner at Blitzscaling Ventures, a fund directing investments to the fastest-growing startups. As an author, Chris is best known for The Alliance with co-authors Reed Hoffman and Ben Kaznoka. Yep. Um, this was a New York Times bestseller. And for Blitzscaling, co-authored with Reed Hoffman, uh, this was one of Amazon's top 20 business and leadership books of 2018. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. It's great to be here. Of course. Thankful to have you on. So, you know, for people that don't know you as well, can you set, us, set the scene, you know, for where you grew up, uh, your family situation, you know, what type of kid you were? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Santa Monica, California. So uh, it was an idyllic childhood. Most of you people probably know about Santa Monica. It's this beautiful suburb of Los Angeles. Well, not really a suburb, but a small city on the outskirts of Los Angeles. It meant that I went to school with a bunch of folks who, you know, maybe they had famous parents and stuff like that. So kind of a Hollywood upbringing, but only Hollywood adjacent. My family was pretty normal. My dad as a research scientist and engineer, and my mom uh, volunteered at the library and took care of us. So we had a classic middle American, Chinese American upbringing. And then I went to Stanford for my undergraduate work, and I studied product design and creative writing. And then after I graduated, I moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I worked for D.E. Shaw, which is a company most famous for being the company Jeff Bezos left to start Amazon. And I didn't know Jeff. He had left about 18 months before I got there, but I got to work on the internet in the very early days of the 1990s and went to, uh, got the chance to do things like experience in IPO, went to business school at Harvard Business School, and then came back to Silicon Valley in the year 2000. I've been here ever since working in the startup world. So I have a phenomenal, just classic startup background, great family, great upbringing, no traumas, just feeling good. Yeah, yeah. So one, one thing that I found interesting reading your bio was you started your journey at Stanford at 15. Uh, so I'm curious, you know, I, I, I saw some of that was Merman School for the Gifted Children. Um, curious, you know, uh, how did you get to that level? Was that, you know, a combination of parents pushing you and teachers recognizing you know, some sort of talent and then your own intrinsic motivation or, you know, talk to us a little bit about that. I got to tell you, I'm impressed. Most people don't do that much research, so they don't know about these things. That's really cool. You are diving deep. So, yeah, let me get into that because it is a fascinating story that I don't tell very often. So the way it happened was that I was just going to traditional public schools in Santa Monica, which of course are very good, but are still public schools. And I went to public school, Franklin Elementary to be precise, for my kindergarten, first and second grade years. And by the time I was in the second grade, there were problems that were starting to arise. The first was that, you know, I was too advanced for the classes. And so I just sat in the back of the room and read books all the time. And the teachers didn't like that. The second is I was being compared to my sister, who was four and a half years older, who was a model student in every single way. And so all of a sudden they expect, well, this guy is from the same family. Shouldn't he just be a model student who'll be content to do things? And the answer was no, because I was a bad attitude and I really wanted to do my own things. And so things were not going great. I mean, they're going okay, but they weren't going great in school. 
And that's when somebody said, you know, maybe he needs a gifted environment. He needs a place that actually will challenge him. And we found out about the Merman School. I went up there and I took the IQ test. And that's the way you got into the Merman School. They administered an IQ test. Either you had to pass the IQ test or be enormously wealthy. And in our case, it was the former. And they admitted me. So I went to the Merman School from the third through sixth grade. And in the Merman School, it was an incredibly talented bunch of folks that I went to school with, including the children of famous Hollywood actors and actresses, people who were famous politicians or so on and so forth. And today, if I look back on my classmates, there's folks who have you know, been on network television shows, worked for Lucasfilm, uh, composed uh, Tony award-winning musicals, you name it. There's like an endless array of amazing things that people have done. And I felt very privileged to be in that environment. And in that environment, we got to learn as fast as we wanted to. And so I was there for those four years, third through sixth grade. Uh, and the funny story there is that when I was at this school for gifted children, my nickname was Encyclopedia Yay. So in those days, there was a popular series of children's books called the Encyclopedia Brown Mysteries about a detective named Encyclopedia Brown who was known for being very intelligent. And he solved mysteries with science facts and things like that, pointing out flaws in logic and error. And at this gifted school, my nickname was Encyclopedia Yay because I knew so much about everything and I read so many books. Like when we did the March of Dimes where you measure the number of books you read in a month, uh, the first month, the first time we did it, I read 100 books and I decided that was not enough. So I tried to go for a record. I did 114 the next year when we did the March of Dimes. So I was reading, you know, three or four books a day and going nuts at this gifted school. And then after the sixth grade, we decided, uh, my mom decided, you know, would make, because she was the one who generally made these decisions, hey, we should probably get him back into some regular schools, see what it's like. And I went to what was then known as Lincoln Junior High, later Lincoln Middle School. I was there for the last year, it was a junior high, which meant grades seven, eight, and nine. And when I was there for grade seven, it was this huge culture shock because I'd been at a school for gifted children for four years and I had a bad attitude before then. And now I'm dropped back into a regular public school, admittedly in Santa Monica, but still a regular public school with mm -hmm. a bunch of people I hadn't seen since the second grade maybe. And it was a severe shock because of like three or four years behind where I was, it was like nuts. And when we went to complain to the administration about it, the people there were like, well, you know, he should just be grateful because obviously if the material's beneath him, he can just get an A. That's a terrible attitude to have. <laughs> yeah. um, we had other proof points. So for example, I don't know if you know this, there's a program called the Center for, Tal the Center for Talented Youth, CTY, yeah. that Johns yeah. Hopkins runs. Yeah. And so the way you get in is you take the SAT. So when I was 12, I took the SAT and I got a 1380 which is a pretty good score for you know, a high school student, let alone a 12 year old. And we pointed that out to the principal of the school and she's like, well, you know, he's just good at taking tests. So that obviously was not gonna stand. I was not gonna stay at that school any longer. My mother fortunately would support me on that. My father would as well, but my mother was the main one who fought these battles. And so we were trying to figure out what I would do. And we talked to a couple of folks. We talked to the folks at Santa Monica High School and we talked to the folks at UCLA because UCLA had a program where they would actually admit extremely young people to start college early. So I had two offers. One was to start UCLA at the age of 12 and the other was to go to high school but skip a couple of grades ahead. 
And after considering it, we decided it would make more sense for me to go to high school and just skip a few years ahead. Uh, because we felt like jumping straight to college, while tempting in some ways, was probably not the best thing for me. So I went to high school for three years. Basically, it was the 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. So I skipped from the 7th grade to the 10th grade, plus half of my classes were one year ahead of that. And so that also meant that during my senior year at Santa Monica High School, I got to participate in what was called the UCLA High School Scholars Program, which meant I would take my morning classes at the high school, then take the bus to UCLA and take a half academic calendar at UCLA in, in the afternoons. Wow. And so this was super helpful because it meant that I actually understood what college classes were like. A lot of people, they go through high school, they're the valedictorian, they're the smartest person in their class, and then they arrive at a college like Stanford, and they start taking these classes like, oh my God, I'm not the best at everything anymore. Holy crap, this is so much harder. Well, I'd already been through that, right? I already started taking college classes and I was like, wow, college calculus is so much harder than high school calculus. And college pace is so much higher than high school pace. But I've already adapted by taking a year of classes at UCLA by the time I got to Stanford. So it was a pretty easy transition. But it did mean that I was entering Stanford at the age of 15, though I always point out to people because my birthday is late in the year, I did turn 16 when I was a freshman. Yeah. I'm curious, uh, you know, now, you know, you're a father and, and yeah. things like that. For me, when I hear this story, I mean, obviously it's awesome for your intellectual development, but from an emotional development perspective, like, do you, how do you look back on that? Like, do you wish you had, you know, turned 21, you know, in your junior year at Stanford rather than, you know, not even turning 21 after even, graduating yeah, yeah, and after being graduating. a working stiff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's an interesting question. And it's funny because I actually have probably the number one answer on Quora to this is what's it like to be a child prodigy. And I tell everyone, you know, there's so many people who view the downsides of being a child prodigy. They're like, oh my God, the social development, is there isolation, and are there all these bad things? I'm like, no. I mean, there are obviously complications to being in school when you're much younger than everyone else. But the environments I was in were generally fairly supportive of me, right? People looked out for me even despite the fact that I was younger. And as a whole, I tell people, well, you know, what would you like to do? Would you like to spend more time, you know, in high school? Would you rather spend more time at, say, Stanford or starting a company or doing all these other things? So I look back with exactly zero regrets about it. I think that the path worked out phenomenally well for me, and I think it worked awesome. Uh, I do have friends who, you know, actually went through that process of going to college super early, whether it's 14 years old, 13 years old. I had one friend who graduated from medical school at the age of 18. He's still a very successful surgeon out in the Midwest. So it worked out okay for him too, but that was not the path I chose. The path I chose was a slightly more conventional path. And I feel like I did get, you know, a lot of the experience. Now, did it, did I have exactly the same experience as someone going through at the same time? Well, no. Uh, there's a funny story that I like to tell about one of my math classes in high school. Uh, do, do we have like five minutes to tell a story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. So here's the story. I was in math class. And of course, I'm in math class with people who are three years older than me. So I would say that this meant I was like, maybe 13 or 14 and everyone else was 16 or 17. Yep. And so in this math class, we're having a, a unit on statistics. And the teacher is asking, well, you know, we're going to do this unit on statistics. 
let's come up with some sort of question so we can poll the class and see what people answer and have an interesting distribution of results. And I heard that and was like, well, I want to be helpful. And I was thinking to myself, well, you'll be interesting. Like, for example, my mother, my mother's kind of weird about this. She like as a snack makes liver for me. And I would eat liver as a snack. And I know other people eat things like sweet meats and things like that. There's all sorts of consumption of organ meat in different cultures. I'm like, well, that probably is an interesting statistic. And so I raised my hand, teacher calls on me. I say, well, you know, one of the things that we could do is we could use as a question, what's your favorite organ? And this <laughs> caused all these 16 and 17 year olds to start laughing. And I start laughing and I start thinking about it. I'm like, oh, no, I, okay, all right, I get it, I get it. <laughs> I was silly, I shouldn't have said that. I said, well, no, 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 no. I said, listen, no, you guys are misunderstanding what I'm saying. What I'm asking is, what's your favorite organ to eat? Yeah. At yeah. which point the class broke down entirely. There was no way to restore order. Everything just went, uh, they, they, they couldn't, they just had to end the class. Um, yeah. And that's an example of the sort of thing that happens if you're three years younger than everyone else at a particular age. Yeah, yeah. So you it does make for a good story. Yeah, yeah, no, that's hilarious. Um, so you get to Stanford, you eventually graduate with product design and creative writing, two bachelors. Uh, you know, I'm curious, you know, if, if anyone's listening to this and is now entering as a freshman in college, you know, as you look at your college experience, is there something you would say, you know, in order to make the most of it that you look back on, um, which was a good idea for you? Absolutely. So there are several things that I would say. And of course, I'm biased. I like to think that I had an awesome college experience. It's been helpful to me for the rest of my career. So the first thing I would say is it's very tempting for people who go into college to have a plan. It makes people feel good to have a plan. And I knew people who came into college and they had their entire life planned out already. And these classes and this major and going to medical school or going to this school or that school. And you know what? It makes you feel good to have a plan. And I would sometimes look at my classmates who are doing this kind of stuff and, and be jealous because I'm like, wow, you know, I wish I had that kind of certainty. They must really, really know, hmm. right? So for example, one of, my one of my classmates did what is a classic high achiever thing, which is, you know, we were in something called structured liberal education, which is a super intensive combination, humanities, literature, philosophy, history, course, which takes up half your schedule, you live in a special dorm, you have like two or three hours of discussion a day. So mm -hmm. it's an incredible experience. But that only leaves you with a little bit left in your schedule. You only have half a schedule left, and maybe even less, because, you know, that was nine units, and the average of 15, and the maximum is 20. Yeah. So my friend, what he did, in addition to taking SLEE, which is nine units a quarter, is he took advanced physics and advanced calculus. Yeah. So these are like the hardest possible classes that you can take as a freshman. And on some level, it's like, oh my God, this guy's got it dialed in. He's doing the absolute hardest things. And later he told me that was the stupidest thing I could have ever done. That's the classic thing that we all do when we're in high school. We think we're hot shit and we think we have to do the hardest thing. None of that shit was useful to me at all in my career. I never should have taken it. It was a miserable experience. And I didn't do that, right? So I remember that I went and took a, I had, I'd already done my calculus at UCLA, so that was great. I just had to do one more class and then I was done. 
And I had, because I'd done all these classes at UCLA, all these classes at AP, I had all these units going in. I think I had 80 or 90 units going in, the equivalent of one year of school already. <laughs> yeah. So I had the flexibility to do what I wanted. So my very first, uh, my very first quarter at Stanford, you know, I, in addition to taking that mathematics, that calculus class, I also took a class in anthropology. I'd never taken a class in anthropology before. I'm like, why not? I took a class in acting. I'd never taken a class in acting before. Why not? Right? I took all these classes that were just like, they sounded interesting. And I have no idea. There was no plan. There was no notion of, well, these are all going to fit together. But I did them because I'm like, hey, if I don't try stuff now, when am I going to try stuff? And that extends beyond just your academic classes, right? So obviously I went on and had a very interesting academic career looking at these two different topics, plus a lot of other things along the way. Uh, I think I set a record for most classes taken as an undergraduate because I actually figured out a way to cheat the system. <laughs> so we were transitioning between paper and computer. Yeah. And I took advantage of that transition to cheat the system. So in the paper-based system, you would come up with your schedule and then you had to have your academic advisor sign off on your schedule. So you'd write down your classes on a piece of paper and your academic advisor would look it over and talk with you about the schedule and then they'd sign it. And so it's not much chance to cheat because there's people who are looking at it. And then in a, computer, in a computerized system, in theory, you shouldn't be able to cheat because it's all computerized, but not if they fail to computerize it completely and not if they haven't thought about all the potential uh, bugs or ways that people could screw around with the system. Yeah. What I discovered for my sophomore and junior years, they fixed it by the time I was a senior, but for my sophomore and junior years, there was a loophole. When you picked your class schedule, you could specify the number of units you were taking classes for because yeah. there was a maximum number of units for class, but there was no minimum number of units for class. You couldn't put zero, but you could put any number that was lower than the maximum. So what I did is I took classes for less units than they were worth. So I could cram in 25% more classes per quarter. That's amazing. At the same price. <laughs> That's awesome. And I did this for two years, like sneaking in, taking 20 units a quarter, actually taking about 30 units a quarter. And then when I came in my senior year, they had found the problem. They, they closed the loophole. I was like, damn it. <laughs> But during that time, I really went crazy and got to take all these extra classes that normally you couldn't take. That's amazing. That's amazing. So, but what um, I was saying is yep. know, it's the academic side, but then there's yep. the non-academic side. So the other thing you got to do in college is to take full advantage of the fact that this, there's never going to be a time in history when the opportunity to try new things is served up to you on a silver platter. And so among the things that I did, which cross over between academic and non-academic, uh, I mentioned that you mentioned that I had a degree in creative writing. I also studied acting and then improvisation. And then I was part of an improvisational comedy group for most of my time at Stanford. We would give performances on campus. We traveled to comedy festivals and performed. We never got any television appearances, unfortunately. But, you know, it was a great experience and the ability to think on your feet and be able to deal with any situation has been enormously useful since then. Similarly, uh, I took the peer counseling course and ended up coming back around and teaching that course a number of times. I was what's called a section leader teaching the course, helping people understand how to be counselors and learning how to perform active listening, how to really deal with people with empathy, learning how to withhold judgment and relate to people. 
that's also been enormously valuable. If you're a manager, obviously these are things that every manager should know, but very few of them do. Yeah. And then finally, uh, I also took a class on public speaking because guess what? I could take all these extra classes because yeah. I'd figured out the system. <laughs> so I took a class on public speaking because I was like, I figure I'd, I, I think I'm pretty good at it, but I would love to know what the actual technique for it is. And then after I finished the class, the teachers came up to me and said, hey, would you be interested in teaching this class next? And so I took the class to teach public speaking and I taught public speaking for a year or two as well. And that was also really helpful. And if you think about my career, teaching public speaking, learning how to be an empathetic counselor, learning improvisational comedy were probably just as important or more important than a bunch of academic classes. And certainly more important than my poor friend who took advanced calculus and advanced physics and now works in a field that has nothing to do with either of them. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, you know, after graduating from from Stanford, um, you went to D. Shaw. I'm curious, can you talk about your mindset and any piece of advice you have to, you know, say a senior in college in terms of making that decision to, you know, you know, decide on your first job out of college? Yeah, so it was a strange uh, decision because uh, it was something that came up at the last second. So I kind of had a default path for me after college, which was I like, go work for IDEO. My David Kelly, the founder and CEO of IDEO at the time, was my advisor in college. And there was basically just a straight pipeline from the product design department to IDEO. And so I didn't even need to do a job interview. It's just like, hey, you want to work for the company? And so that was what my plan was. But then fate intervened. D.E. Shaw sent me this letter in the mail. It's this recruiting letter that I think they still send in some form. It's like, hi, you don't know me, but I'm David Shaw former professor of computer science at uh, Columbia, former PhD in computer science from Stanford University, your alma mater, and I run D.E. Shaw and Company, and we are a secretive hedge fund at the cutting edge of finance and technology, and we hire the smartest people in the world, and we believe, because of your academic record, that we would like to talk with you. And I'm like, investment banking, finance, what is this? give a crap about this. I already got a job. Why the hell do I need to listen to this? Yeah. And my mom said, hey, this is some rich Wall Street firm. You know, why don't you at least talk to them? If they fly you out for an interview, you'll get a chance to fly first class. Wouldn't you like to see what it's like <laughs> at the front of the plane? Yeah. I'm like, mom, you make a good point. Yeah. As you can tell, my mother is very influential in my life. My father yeah. as well, but my mother is quite a personality. Yeah. So that's what I did. I talked with the folks at D.E. Shaw and went out to interview with them in New York with no intention whatsoever ever working for the company. This was purely a, hey, I'd like to sit at the front of the plane <laughs> exercise per my mom. Yeah. And it was great. Like, oh my God, there's so much room. They bring me warm nuts. Alas, I'm not old enough to drink any alcohol. So <laughs> I couldn't ask. They probably wouldn't have checked my ID. Um, yeah. But anyway, so I fly out and I interview with them and that's when I find out that they're working on internet related stuff. And I'm like, based on my time at Stanford, like I said, class of 1995, it's there during the internet revolution, it's first class to come in and automatically get an email account when I came in. And I'm like, this internet thing is going to be the biggest thing that ever hits the world. And I want to be a part of it. And here's this company with seemingly infinite money that wants me to come join them and it's all a bunch of brilliant computer scientists. They want me to help them conquer the internet. I'm like, okay. And they're going to pay me more than anyone else by like a wide margin. I'm sold. 
And so that's how I ended up going to DE Shaw. Mm -hmm. And the lesson to extract here is not go to who's going to offer you the most money, although you know that's not a bad <laughs> way of doing things. It was more along the lines of these folks are working on something that I think is going to be big. I'm making a prediction about the future. This is the bet I should make. Now, I was ignorant. If I knew more about the world, I would have said, wait a minute, why am I leaving Silicon Valley to do internet work? There's like the internet's happening around me. Like this is the place where it's all going to happen. And if I, you just go to work for Yahoo and then Google, you'll be so rich, you'll own your own island. But alas, I did not have that kind of foresight. So I went to Boston and Cambridge, Massachusetts to pursue a career in the startup world. I later corrected that by coming back here, obviously, and it all worked out okay. But, you know, it's not like it was a brilliant decision, but it was a decision that ended up getting me into the industry. And for that, I'm grateful. And as my wife points out, if I hadn't gone to Boston, I never would have met her. So obviously it was all worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a good point. So after D. Shaw, uh, Harvard Business School, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious, you know, were you, were you did you have a plan um, like work three years and go to uh, nope. business school or how did that come about? Not at all. So I went to work for D.E. Shaw. I had no intention of ever going to business school. I didn't think of myself as a business person. But and I was hired at D.E. Shaw as, with the ability to do a variety of things. In fact, I was hired because I have a degree in design and they needed help on design. I was hired because I had experience with intellectual property and getting patents because some of the work I did at Stanford and they wanted that too. And so I got you know, brought in to work on those things, but I also worked on the business side. And it just so happened that, you know, one of the folks that I worked with was a Harvard Business School alum. And then another person who we brought in later on was also a Harvard Business School alum. And then a third person who came in who later was my manager was a Harvard Business School alum. So it was like one of these crazy things where there are all these HBS people that I was meeting. Now, part of it is obviously we're in Cambridge. And so people who go to HBS, a lot of them like to stick around in Massachusetts. But I was getting to meet these really cool people who are Harvard Business School alumni. And I'm like, wow, what is this Harvard Business School thing? Maybe I should think about this business school. And I was encouraged to pursue business school. They're like, you should definitely do that. You'd be great for it. And so I ended up applying to both Stanford and Harvard Business School. Ironically enough, I was already sick of the weather in Boston. So I wanted <laughs> to go back to Stanford, even yeah. though theoretically it would be better for me to go to Harvard Business School, have both the Stanford degree and the Harvard degree. But I was like, I'm sick of this weather. But I didn't have to decide because Stanford rejected me. I only applied to those two schools because I wasn't going to bother going to any other school. I thought about applying to schools. I'm like, why am I going to apply to a school I'm not willing to go to? That's ridiculous. Yeah. So I applied to those two schools. I got into HBS. The only reason I applied to HBS is my wife was like, you should at least go and check it out. And I walked over, I went to the campus to get the application form because back then it wasn't online. You filled this <laughs> crap out by paper. Yeah. And once I stepped foot on the campus, I'm like, holy crap, this place is so nice. Oh my God, I've never seen a place this nice. And I spent much of my life at Stanford. What's going on here? And so I ended up being persuaded to that day would be okay to go to Harvard Business School. And I got in and that's how I started my career there. And it was great in many ways because uh, I had like the best of both worlds. So I had Harvard Business School going on, but I still had a lot of my friends from Boston and Cambridge from having lived three years there before. And so it was like this magical time when I'm meeting all these new friends, I have all these old friends, I've got all this time on my hands because business school is actually super easy for someone who has an engineering degree and an English degree and a background in public speaking and who is used to doing you know 30 unit quarters of engineering work. So for me, it was really easy and a great time. Yeah. 
I'm curious, you know, you've been at Stanford and now you're at Harvard Business School. Is there a point ever where you're self-conscious or intimidated by, you know, all that's going on, especially during this time where, you know, there's so many unknowns about the world, the internet, e-commerce, like what, what is the path of the world? Um, were you ever intimidated? So I wouldn't say I was intimidated. I'll, I'll give you two different ways of thinking about it. The first is I have always had the philosophy that a fish grows to the size of its bowl. And so for me, I had some friends who are like, oh, you know, the best thing is to be a big fish in a small pond. I'm like, that's ridiculous. Go to a lake and then you'll grow to fit the lake. Mm -hmm. And so it's always been my feeling that the bigger the opportunity, the more I'd be able to do with it. And so, you know, when I went to Stanford, that was a bigger opportunity than high school. When I went to Harvard Business School, that was a bigger opportunity than being an undergrad. These are all, when I went into the startup world, it was yet another bigger opportunity. And my point was, you're gonna grow, the fish is gonna grow to the size of the tank, go to the biggest possible tank, and then become a big fish in that tank. That's my philosophy. Yeah. And you know, you may say it's sort of expansive. Some might say it's even over the top and crazy megalomaniacal, but that was the way I looked at it. And so I never thought to myself, oh my God, I can't believe I'm here. Oh my God, how are we gonna do all this? Now, what I did feel like was like, oh my God, there's so many great opportunities. I can never do them all. And oh my God, my friend over here is already this rich. My friend over here is already this successful. How am I ever gonna keep up? I did feel that sometimes. But then I eventually realized through a lot of work in the field of positive psychology, which is the study of human flourishing, that all that kind of extrinsic motivation, scorekeeping, trying to be bigger than other people is just bullshit. Even if you are successful, it's not going to make you happy. And so I learned to let go of that stuff. Now, I still want to be successful. When I book, have a book come out, I want it to sell well. I want audiences to be bigger. I always want more. But I know that that's not necessarily the thing that is the most meaningful and going to bring happiness. Yeah, it's great if it happens, but if it doesn't happen, that's not the most important thing. Yeah. Is there any piece of advice you would give to a current MBA student on making the most of their experience? So one thing I tell people, both college students and MBA students, is that the professors are remarkably underutilized. Right? If you're a student, you are paying for the ability to access these incredible minds, these people who are just some of the smartest folks in the world. They've clawed their way to the top of the heap. If you are a full professor at a place like Stanford or Harvard Business School, I mean, you are at the top of your profession. You're like an Olympian. And then students don't spend any time, actively avoid spending time with their professors. That's nuts. They have office hours. They're required to talk with you. So I'd go and hang out. If I didn't have a question, I'd just hang out and they'd usually enjoy it. I got to develop good relationships with various professors and folks like that. And I just feel like this is something most people dramatically underutilize. Now, again, the goal is not to go there and suck up and kiss ass and say, oh, my God, Professor, your research is so amazing. It's more along the lines of, hey, what are you working on? Well, that's kind of interesting. Well, tell me more about that. Or, hey, I'm trying to figure this thing out. How would I do that? And you basically have access to people who would normally charge a corporation $10,000 for that advice, and they have to give it to you for free. So that's something I think people dramatically underestimate and do not take advantage of. Yeah. So uh, I saw out, out after Harvard Business School, um, you founded your own car company, Target First. You know, as you, you know, you started this business, 
1999 in the midst of your MBA. I'm curious, you know, what was your mindset? What was it? I've experienced the corporate path for three years. Let me try entrepreneurship or how did you think of that? Well, my mindset was very simple. Uh, I said to myself, by the time I graduate in June of 2000, this stock market boom is going to be over. These stocks are insanely overvalued. This whole thing is going to collapse like a deck of cards. And I got to make some money before it collapses. Otherwise, I'll have missed out on this incredible opportunity because I happened to be in business school while the world went crazy. And so Target First was my cynical attempt to cash in. I pulled together everything I could think of that was trendy so that I could fool people into giving me money so I could then fool people into buying the company. It was a complete and utter cash grab. And it ultimately wasn't successful because I didn't quite move fast enough. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, it was a great experience. I brought in my old high school friend, Thomas, who had become an internet millionaire. So he had technology skills and he could bankroll us. I brought in my old friend, Albert from Stanford. He was a brilliant computer scientist who had already been in a startup and I had brought him to D.E. Shaw with me and then he came with me to this new company. And so we were able to build this company and get it off to a great start it all collapsed uh, during the dot-com bust because you know we were advertising supported and advertising went away. But until that point, we were on a great track. Our first month, we did 20,000 in revenues. Our second month, we did 100,000. Our third month, we did 144,000. So I figured we were off to the races. I won my bet. Instead of doing a summer job, I started a company. I was going to sell it for cash and be a millionaire. And it didn't work out that way. It just We couldn't make it happen quite fast enough. The dot-com crash happened. And that's when the painful part of it was because a company that had cobbled together in a cynical fashion without something that I necessarily believed was a good idea uh, was now something I was forced to run because I had taken millions of dollars from folks. So, you know, that was a challenge. And eventually we we're able to, you know, find a way to, to recover some of the money and give it back to our investors. And as one of the investors put it, well, Chris, you just gave me back five cents on the dollar which means it was a top quartile return for that year of investments. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and those investors generally um, had a good opinion of me, which was very important, right? A big part of it is making sure, like I stuck it out and slugged it out and, and got them as much money as I could because I'd taken their money. I mean, they were all trying to cash in too. We were all greedy together, but I knew that they had entrusted me with their money and it was up to me to try to get them as much of it as I could. And that meant that, you know, one of them, like our original angel investor, then brought me in to help him start his next company, even though I'd lost him half a million dollars. Yeah. Do you, do you have any advice on the fundraising process and trying to, you know, uh, a lot of people don't necessarily have all the connections. And so they're, you know, cold emailing or things like that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, doing pitches um, any advice on the fundraising process? So a couple things. First of all, don't raise money unless you're sure you want to do the company. Because I raised money, raised $6 million, and that trapped me. I had to slug it out and do my best for folks. I would have loved to quit and move on to something else. But I couldn't because I had a sense of responsibility. Now, you could be a sociopath and just quit and say, screw it, it's somebody else's problem. But guess what? I'm pretty sure your investors are going to remember that. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to be something you're going to want to do. Yep. So before you raise money, before you start that clock ticking, before you, in, uh, you obligate yourself to other folks, make sure it's something you want to do. Now, assuming that you do want to raise money, then it becomes a question of, well, how do you raise money? And the answer is, you should make sure you build relationships with the folks you're going to raise money from before you ask them for money. 
who are they more likely to give money to? The latest person to reach out to them with a cold email, somebody who just managed to grab them after a conference or a, a, a speaking engagement, or their old personal friend, Chris Yeh, that they've known for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. It's so much easier to raise money in that second circumstance. And that's why when you are working as an entrepreneur, your objective is not to live like Elon Musk claims to live, I have some doubts about whether it's true, but live like Elon Musk claims to live. I'm going to live in a box and just work 24 hours a day. That's dumb, right? And that's clearly not what Elon does because he's developed relationships with many people around the world, right? You should, instead of just sitting in a box, develop relationships, develop friendships, because who you know and the network that you have is just as important for success as slaving away and sending out a few more emails. And based on that, Leverage those relationships when it comes time to raise money. This does not uh, this does not mean that it's there's not you know bias. Like I said, as as one audience as one moderator once told me after I was speaking, this is the Asian Leadership Conference. I was talking about you know how I know so many famous and rich people. It's like Chris, let me get this straight. Go to Stanford University and then Harvard Business School, and you know a lot of good people. Let me tell you, this is not something that everyone can put into practice. I'm like, okay, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, and so. You know, it, but it is the case that thanks to the internet, we all have greater access than ever before. Yeah, if you go to Stanford or Harvard, you have access to these incredible professors and classmates and all that sort of thing. But let's say you didn't go there. Let's say you went to community college. Well, you could still meet people online. You could still start to interact with people on social media. You can still listen to their podcast. You can still really get to know them. And by the way, if you're writing your own blog or if you are, for example, I don't know, uh, operating your own podcast as somebody who's a newly minted MBA, it's surprising how many people will say yes, especially if you have a track record of, of getting great conversations out. So I think that, you know, it doesn't matter what schools you went to. Yeah, it's easier. Of course it's easier. If you get a chance to go to Stanford or Harvard Business School, you should do it. But you don't need to do those things in order to build relationships. Yeah. I'm curious from a mental perspective. I think after this, you went to Porthos Consulting. But, um, you know, just a personal story. I have a friend who just, you know, his startup sort of failed. And yeah. right now, mentally, he's not in the best place because it was his identity, you know? Yeah. And I'm, you know, trying to get him, you know, back on track and kind of more positive thinking. Um, do you have any, you know, obviously it didn't deter you. You've gone on to have a very successful career. Um, is, is it, do you have to compartmentalize it or like, how do you not yeah, so you know. the topic of mental health for entrepreneurship is really important because mental health for entrepreneurs is a, a critical subject. It's one of the most stressful careers you can have. I have known entrepreneurs who, in fact, did take their own lives um, because of either the failure or impending failure of their companies. And it's one of the most sad and tragic things in the world. And it happened exactly like you said for your friend. Their identity became tied up in their company and they viewed this failure of their company as their personal failure and something that would mark them forever. Now, we live in a world, especially here in Silicon Valley, where failure is more acceptable than anywhere else in the world. And it really is not that big a deal. The thing is, if you feel like it's a big deal, you may still act that way. So from a entrepreneurial psychology perspective, there's a couple of things. You have to understand and just keep telling yourself, I am not my company. My company is not me. I have my own identity. 
And that means that you need to continue to have relationships, friends, and loved ones with people who are not part of the company. I know it's very tempting for entrepreneurs to pour their entire heart and soul and do nothing but the company. And all of a sudden, all the people they know are the people who work at the company. And that's the only thing they have in their life. And all of a sudden it goes away and their entire life is empty. Well, you know, for me, when my company went away, I still had my friends. I still had my classmates. I still had my wife. Eventually I had kids. These were all things that were a part of my identity. I didn't identify with the company. Maybe part of that was I was lucky enough, lucky if you call it that, to have cynically gone into it saying, hey, you know, this, the company is a means to an end. It is not me. It's yeah. just my way of cashing in. And so in some sense, I was protected by that. But then the other way to protect yourself about this is to not deny reality. When the company failed, and again, I gave some of the money back to, 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 the, uh, to the investors, but it was a failure, let's face it. When I went and was at a party or talking with people and someone asked me, what do you do? I'd say, I'm an unemployed bum. I lost $6 million of investor money. Yeah. I'm gonna figure out what to do next. And you know what? People don't say, oh my God, you failure, get away from me. They're like, really? Tell me more about that. Right? If you have confidence in yourself, if you have an identity separate from your uh, financial success, it's okay to admit, hey, you know what? I, I gave it a shot. I came close, but it didn't work out. That's too bad. On to the next play. On to the next thing. And if you have things in your life beyond the company, and you should maintain things in your life beyond the company, even when you're in the thick of things. And if you are willing to be honest and say, look, I failed. Um, I gave it a shot. I blew a bunch of my savings. I made mistakes along the way, but I've learned from them. Then you can come back from just about anything. As long as you weren't criminal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that was an awesome piece of advice. Uh, I then saw Porthos Consulting, Symphonic, Rapid Fire Partners, um, is, is there anything about those three experiences that you'd like to speak? Yeah, about? so let me talk about each of them in turn. They're very different stories for each. Porthos Consulting was a consulting project I did with my old friend and often my multiple-time business partner, Tom Kugler. Uh, Tom Kugler, who is known as TK, the reason he's known as TK is when I hired him to be VP of Sales for my company, I already had a Tom and a Thomas. So I'm like, he's like, he, and he went by Tom Kugel. I'm like, well, Tom, I'm afraid I can't call you Tom. I already got a Tom. I already got a Thomas. So from now on, you're TK. And I dubbed him TK and it stuck with him so much. He's like, you know what? I like it better than Tom. Now I'm going to have everyone call me TK. And he's gone by TK for the rest of his life. So I gave him his name, which I think is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Porthos Consulting was for us to do stuff together because uh, we're friends and also because we're very complimentary. He had a strong background in sales, had a strong background in marketing. We'd get together and help companies. And we did it as Porthos Consulting, which is also a name that came about because of me, because on one of the trips that TK and I took together for Target First, we were flying to China for a series of meetings. It's a long flight. And he was reading The Three Musketeers and he finished the book and then I reread The Three Musketeers. We both read it many times. It's just a great book, as you know. Yep. Yep. And at, we were still on the middle of the flight and I finished the book. I was handing it back to TK and he was like, oh, uh, did you enjoy it? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So TK, which of the musketeers do you think you are? And he said, well, you know, I've always think of myself as D'Artagnan. Like, that's interesting because you're actually Porthos. 
<laughs> and he went back and he came back an hour or two later. And it's a long flight because we're flying to Shanghai, I think. And he's like, you know, you're right. I am Porthos. And so later on, when it came time to create an entity for us to do our work together, he named it Porthos Consulting because of this comment that took place on board this flight to Shanghai that we were on together. Right. Uh, Symphonic is the company that I helped my first angel investor start with his friends who were very successful entrepreneurs. They had built a company that was, that was worth billions of dollars. They had become enormously wealthy. They all had generational wealth, but they wanted to go ahead and get the band back together. And you know, they tried retirement, it didn't take. Yeah. They're like, yeah, I tried golfing. That's not very exciting. Let's start another company. Yeah. And so my angel investor brought me in to run marketing because uh, he's like, you know, you lost my money, but you're one of the smartest guys I met and you lost money in the right ways. It wasn't your fault that the thing went down. I want you to help me start this new company. I'm like, well, from my perspective, Han, I still owe you half a million dollars, so I'll help you out. And so I had the opportunity to be a part of the founding team of this enterprise software company, Symphonic, which ended up being backed by Greylock, which was one of the things that built my relationship with Greylock and all these other things. It all worked out very well. The company itself was a moderate success. I always describe it as New Relic 10 years too early because we had the exact same technology that New Relic uses today. And New Relic is a very successful company, but we were 10 years too early. Nobody wanted it. We ended up being a LaSalva company, the Co-Radiant, then BMC. Investors did okay, but it was not a big success. But it was a great experience. It was my enterprise software learning, and uh, I got a chance to work with a great team. And it was the springboard for the next thing I did, which was to run Ustream. And then finally, Rapid Fire Partners is more of an expression of sort of my philosophy. So it is an LLC that is used strictly as a legal shield for when I do stuff. So it's not an actual business. But I love the name Rapid Fire Partners because it reflects my emphasis on speed. Mm. I believe in doing things fast. I believe in trying a lot of stuff. And the notion of being Rapid Fire Partners fits in with that. And the other way it's used today is it allowed me to get a, a corporate plan on T-Mobile, which I still use for my family. I'm grandfathered in. We have four lines, unlimited everything for 25 bucks a line. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to make a little bit of a change. Sure. So you mentioned it, um, that you met your, your, your wife in Boston and things like that. So just turn, turn the personal life gears ba back on. Um, can you, can you talk about that? Um, you know, for so many people today who are young and career driven, you know, the answer I hear is, oh, I'm not even addressing that part of my life. Can you, can you talk about, you know, how you managed personal and professional and any advice you have on, you know, finding the one? Sure. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the broader context of this is that, Personally, I always knew that I wanted to get married and have a family. This is just, you know, something that was a deeply felt thing from the time I was young, enjoyed playing with children, and it's something that I wanted for myself. Uh, when I met my wife, it was in Boston. I had been working for D.E. Shaw for, you know, probably about six months when I met her. The way we met, and uh, this is the fun way of describing it, is we met at a pool hall. And I like saying that because it conjures up a vision, like, was I hustling her? Was she hustling me? There's this smoke-filled room, and it's this exciting kind of meet-cute. 
And the actual story, once I get beyond that headline, is a little more complicated and not quite as interesting, but still, I think, pretty, still pretty fun. So we met at the pool hall because Monitor Consulting was having a party there. It was a recruiting party, which meant it was a free party. Well, I'm not going to pass up a free party. And we actually knew some people in common. So one of my friends from D.E. Shaw was being set up with one of my wife's friends. And they were being set up by a, friend, a guy named Dave, who was a friend of my friend, Richard. And I didn't know about any of this. All I knew was that there was this free party. And I met, I met Dave, I was talking on the phone with him, and he says, so Chris, are you single? And I said, well, Dave, it's very flattering that you would ask. I have to tell you though, I am heterosexual, I am straight. He's like, no, no, that's not what I mean. I'm really like, <laughs> are you single? I'm like, yes, 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 I am, I am single. Uh, and, and I didn't think anything of it, but he was a friend of my, he was a friend of my wife's. And he was looking to set up, again, my friend Richard with another friend of theirs. So we go to this party and my wife uh, had gone to another party beforehand at a nice lovely dinner and maybe a little bit tipsy then gets to this party and she's like, oh wow, looking around, who's the cutest guy here? And she saw the cutest guy and went over to talk with him and it was the bartender who was working the bar and she rapidly discovered from talking with him that he was as dumb as a pile of rocks. <laughs> and she's like, okay, that's not going anywhere. All right, who's the second cutest guy around? And she happened to see me sitting in a chair and she came over and sat down in the chair to say hello. And that's how we met. And so we met then and you know we, uh, we talked quite a bit and we exchanged some information. We didn't immediately start dating and then we went on, uh, then we went together on a group outing to see a movie, which I believe was The Birdcage. Oh, nice. And then after that, um, we actually went on a date and, and started going out together. So uh, that's how it, that's how it happened. And you know, this is something with it. I absolutely thought with, I mean, here I was at D. E. Shaw, and obviously I was working hard and I had a lot of stuff. I was very ambitious in my career, but I also felt like you know what, there's more to life than just work. And if the right person comes into my life, I'm going to be open to that. And so we met each other. The funny story is that she told me after we'd been going out for a short period of time, she's like, listen, you shouldn't expect this to last. I've never gone out with a guy for more than three months. I get tired of you guys and I just don't want you to get hurt too badly. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's good to yeah. know. And here we are and it is 26 years later and we have two kids and, you know, looks like I won that round after all. Yeah. Um, how did, how did, uh, fatherhood change you? So I would say that fatherhood, being a parent, I always tell people, if you think about it in economic terms, there is no substitute for being a parent. In other words, there's nothing that's quite like it. And even though it's something both my wife and I wanted, it was a change. Now you go, I'm a big fan of science that there are certain things to expect. You should expect to get much less sleep. You should expect to be less happy, especially early on. I mean, I'm not one of these people who believes that I can defy what happens to everyone else. I'm like, I'm a big believer in the principle of surrogacy. Daniel Gilbert talked about this, this tumbling on happiness. Usually how other people feel about stuff is how you're gonna feel about stuff. And so I'm like, we're gonna have kids and it's gonna suck 
and then it's going to get better and they're going to get teenagers and it's going to really suck. And then at the end of it, we'll be out of it. And the thing about being a parent is that moment by moment, your life is worse off. You're not going to be as happy. You're not going to be able to do as many things. But in the long run, your life will be much more meaningful and you'll have a legacy and you'll have children and grandchildren and all these wonderful things, which again, there is no substitute for it. So we went into it with our eyes wide open. We had agreed in advance that we wanted to have at least two kids. Before we had kids, my wife was pushing for three and I said, let's wait and see. And after we had our son, my wife was like, maybe we should just have one. I'm like, no, no, we have a plan, at least two. Stick with the plan. And so we have our two kids. And, you know, it is exactly like we said. There's challenges. It's tough. You're sleep deprived. You just feel miserable sometimes. You just don't know what to do. All of these things are true. But at the same time, you know, your kids are full of love. You build a relationship with them. That relationship is constantly changing over time. They may get more distant from you as they're trying to distance themselves. They're trying to become independent. But it's all part of growing up. And at the end of the day, you know, you can't live your life through your kids. You just give them the best shot they have to, to live a happy life. And you have no guarantee that it's going to work out. But you do the best you can. And you accept the fact that, you know, nobody's perfect. And you certainly aren't as a parent. And your kids aren't going to be perfect. And you just do everything you can to make sure they know that you love them and that you support them. And that whatever they do, you're always going to continue supporting them. Unless they become some sort of criminal or murderer, in which case, <laughs> hey, all bets are off. Yeah. Do you feel like you lost any professional drive or anything, or did you just have to be more efficient with time? Both. So I definitely became more efficient with time. And I actually had an unusual experience with this that not a lot of fathers have. So when the kids were born, we then discovered that it was harder for my wife to take care of the infants than it was for me. It was more stressful, more difficult for her than it was for me. So she had maternity leave because, you know, we live in a world where there's maternity leave and not paternity leave here in the United States for the most part. At least this was the case back then. Yeah. And so she took her maternity leave to watch over the kids. And then after that, the kids would be, you know, three or four months old. And I'd be like, that's still too young for them to go into daycare. We can't put them into a daycare setting until they can actually speak. Because we want them to be able to express themselves, to advocate yep. for themselves. And so the way we covered that gap is a combination of my mom was here for a lot of it and helped out quite a bit, but she couldn't be here all the time. She had her own life. And the rest of the time it was me taking the kids in to my office and taking care of them while also running the marketing department of a company. Wow. And so I got to learn very much how remarkably, uh, what an incredible luxury it was to be able to use two hands to type and to only be able to concentrate on work without having to be looking at another kid at the same time. And whenever one of the children would fall asleep, I'd be like, oh my God, quick, let me get this done. Let me type, 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 quick. Let me get this white paper out. Let me do this, let me do that. And so it did make me more efficient. But then the other thing it did is I did also change my mind about what I wanted out of life. So I will tell a couple of interesting stories that actually involve real people. We'll see if they bother to listen to this podcast. Who knows? So when I had my kids, I realized, wow, you know what? This does take up a lot of time. How is this going to work here in Silicon Valley, fast-paced, ambitious environment? And there were two people that I ended up having these interesting experiences with. One person was Ray Lane. 
who was the CEO of Oracle and then a partner at Kleiner Perkins, a very famous, very successful guy. And I got the chance to go to a special dinner with him. It was ridiculous. Uh, I mean, I, gave, I got this opportunity. They're like, oh, it'll cost you $100. I'm like, you guys kidding me? $100 to just have dinner with one of these legendary figures? That's like an insane bargain. I'm glad you didn't ask me for more because I would have paid it. <laughs> so I get to have this dinner with Ray Lane. And it's like Ray and I think four of us, four other people. So it's like Ray and the four of us. It's like a five-person dinner. Maybe it'd be four people. Maybe just Ray and three people. I mean, insane. Yeah. Incredible benefit. And Ray talked very candidly about his life, about his career. And it was fascinating because he talked about, you know, what it was like working at Oracle, how he left. I think it was Bain and then joined Oracle and had to turn all this stuff around. It was incredibly difficult. And he talked very candidly about the cost, the personal cost of doing so. He says, listen, you know, this was really tough because I was an absent father and an absent husband. I was not a good dad. I was not a good husband. I barely know my oldest daughter. My wife and I got divorced. All these were things that I ended up sacrificing for my career. And now that I'm out of Oracle and I'm at Kleiner Perkins, I get up in the morning, I work out with my kids, I go to the office, I work and help people, I leave the office at 6 p.m. every day, I don't stay later, I go back, I have dinner with my family, I love it. It's incredible. And that made a big impression on me. But then what made an even bigger impression on me is what followed. So I asked Ray, Ray, knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently? And he said, nothing. Without those sacrifices, I would not have been as successful as I was. I wouldn't have achieved the things I did. I mm. wanted to be great. And that was the price of greatness. Yeah. And that stuck with me because I'm like, well, hold on. Am I willing to pay that kind of a price? Now, around that same time, it happened to be that I got introduced to Bill George, who later became a professor at HBS, very famous for writing a book called True North and, and other things like that. But when I connected with Bill, he was still CEO of Medtronic out there in the middle of the country in Minneapolis. And he and I got to talking, I don't even know how, like I just met people, right? I would reach out to people because I was an alum and get to connect with them. One of the benefits of going to Harvard Business School because yeah. Bill was also a Harvard Business School alum. And he and I were talking about this and corresponding on email and also talking on the phone. And I said, well, Bill, you know, can you be a good father and also a, a great business person? And he said, look, I don't know how it is out there in Silicon Valley, but here at Medtronic, you know, I was going through life. I was sacrificing my family. And finally I said, no, no more. I'm going to, I'm going to be there for my family. And during this entire time I've been CEO of Medtronic, I've gone to and coached every one of my kids soccer games. They know. If I got to leave during the day, maybe I'll do work later on, but I'm leaving. I'm going to go do that soccer game. And you know what? Unless the CEO is willing to do that, nobody else in the organization is. You got to do that as CEO in order to send the message to everyone else, this is what you should be doing. And so that made a big impression on me as well. So what I ended up concluding out of all of this was this. As a leader, I needed to model the behavior that I felt made the most sense for me. And to me, that meant having a life, not on a deferred plan, but you know, all along, 
uh, valuing family, valuing all those things. And what I also said to myself was, if this means that I am not going to achieve certain things, that is a price I'm willing to pay. And one of the very specific things I did is after my experience with Ustream, which was my first time back as CEO while a father, after that experience is over, we got the company successfully raised a million dollars and, and the founders took over and everything like that. I'm like, I am not going to take any more CEO jobs until the kids are either much older or off to college or something like that. Because you cannot do a good job of being CEO of a fast growth startup and be a father at the same time. There just aren't enough hours in the day. And so I gave up being a CEO in, in 2008. I'm like, I'm not going back to it until the kids are much older. And then lo and behold, we got to today, got to when the kids are older. And now I'm like, you know what? I don't ever need to go back. I've got plenty of other things to do. I don't need to scratch the itch. I've been CEO of a company. I had a company go and sell for $130 million. I don't need to scratch that itch. I don't need to be like, well, we only sold for $130 million. I have never been CEO of a publicly traded company. Let me go back. What kind of madness is that? <laughs> it's just insane egomania. I'm like, yeah. I'm happy with what I got. I love my life the way it is. And unlike Ray Lane, I did not have to sacrifice my first wife and my first child. Yeah, um, that's a, that's an awesome piece of advice. Um, so I saw Athena work, PB Works, and then Ustream and Wasabi Ventures. Um, anything that you want to say on those four different things? So Athena work is an idea that I always thought was a great idea, um, but it, it, it's a great illustration of, you know, it's difficult to, to start a company. The idea behind Athena work is there should be a way for uh, extremely qualified women, especially to have part-time or gig work. And that's because all my friends who have these MBAs from Harvard Business School, some of them would leave the workforce to work with their children. And they didn't want to do that. What they really wanted to do is to be able to split a job, job share, or have a part-time job that wasn't, you know, working at Starbucks or something. And I was like, there's this incredible resource that's underappreciated. And I was just talking, it came up because one of my classmates was talking about how, oh, I have this incredible system where I hire these women who are and have their kids but also want to do work and they produce my PRDs and my white papers and so on and so forth and I was sitting at a lunch and I looked over at my friend Jane who was a woman and also a fellow HBS grad and we're like we got to do this and so we started pulling together the work to do Athena work and originally it was called MBA moms and we were finding no that's not a good name let's call it Athena work it can cover more broadly not just women with MBAs but professional women of all kinds um, and the only problem was around that time, Jane finally won a, a divorce settlement with her ex-husband, who was a very successful money manager. He actually managed Magellan for Fidelity. And it was at that point in time that he finally had to pay all the child support and alimony and all the things that he had been fighting for years, which meant that suddenly she was enormously wealthy. And she also started dating one of the senior deans at the, at the Stanford Business School at the same time. So I don't know about you, but I feel like, okay, on the one hand, do the grimy work of building a company, work endless hours, sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. On the other hand, I'm enormously wealthy and could do anything I want. My new boyfriend and later husband is like, hey, I've been invited to Davos to speak. Would you like to go along and fly first class and stay in a castle? Well, I think you can tell which one of those won. Yeah. 
So it was a great idea and it just goes to show you it's hard to start a company when you are enormously wealthy and are being invited to go to Davos and stay in the castle. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was Athena work. What were the other ones again? Uh, PB works, Ustream and uh, Wasabi ventures. Okay. PB works, uh, is a company where I got to know the founders independently before they came together and, and started the company. It's a product that I've used over the years. It's one of the wiki pioneers. It still is used by, you know, millions of people. And it was a great experience as a company that I joined because, and actually this ties in with Ustream. After I left Ustream, I was going to take a core, um, a three months off and just like write a book or do something. And I left Ustream on a Friday and that Monday I went in that Monday. I had a nice day off. I went to the library. I got a book. I read a book. And then I got this email from my friends over at PV Works saying, hey, can you come in and see us on Tuesday? Because I was an investor in the company. And I went in on Tuesday, they're like, we need your help. We got all the stuff we want to do. We know that you just we know that you just finished your time at Euster and we want to get your time. I'm like, no, I'm not, I wouldn't call it retired, but I'm taking this time off. I haven't taken any time off. They're like, no, 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 just come in a little bit. Just come in a little bit. Okay, all right. A week later, I'm working essentially full time and, you know, that uh, I got I got pulled in. But, yep. you know, I got pulled in for good reasons because I'm like, this is a great group of talented people. And part of the important thing is, is like, you know, I have a lot of great connections in Silicon Valley, but the connection I lack right now is connection with great technologists. I need to know more young, brilliant engineers. And David Weekly, the founder of PB Works, also is the creator of Super Happy Dev House, also the creator of the Hacker Dojo. If there's anything he knows how to do, it's to connect with young, brilliant engineers. And so the deal I made with him is, look, okay, I will join the company, I will work with you, but you got to help me connect with as many brilliant young engineers as possible. He said, done. He kept his end of the bargain, I kept my end of the bargain. Uh, and so great experience. Uh, I eventually had to transition out of the company on a full-time basis because I needed to work on these books full-time. Uh, the company still runs today, still operates the business, still has millions of people using it. Ustream, uh, another incredible experience. It was something where I saw like, this is the future. There's going to be live streaming. It's going to be big. I met these founders. I was introduced, I was introduced to these founders by a friend of mine. They didn't know anybody in Silicon Valley, but they had an incredible demo. I'm like, you guys, this could be huge. And I joined them to help raise the first million dollars, get the company off to its start. I did like the PR work myself to get TechCrunch to write about it and Robert Scoble to post about it and all these different things. It took off. Obviously, eventually IBM bought it for $160 million. So it was a great experience, but it was so much work. It was take the kids to daycare, then go work, take, pick up the kids from daycare, bring them home, then have dinner with the family, then work until 2 a.m., then wake up at 6 a.m. and start the whole process over again. And it was killing me. I was like, I can't do this. A single guy might be able to do this. I can't do this. And that was the realization. Although I'm very grateful to the company because uh, I often jokingly say my house in Palo Alto is called Ustream Manor. Yeah. And so um, after that, I believe you started getting into writing, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, the first book being The Alliance. Um, you know, I guess, you know, this had a lot to do with the employer-employee relationship. Mm -hmm. um, you know, are there a couple of takeaways that you'd like to share uh, from this book that you think people um, could learn more about? Absolutely. So the key important idea of The Alliance 
is that the way we think about relationships with employees is messed up. We usually think of them as a family member, which is because, hey, shouldn't everyone feel positive about each other? But it's messed up because families are permanent and work is not. And so anytime we have to confront that reality, something's got to give. And so it's like a shattering of an illusion. People become disillusioned. And when they become disillusioned, they usually then revert to the other bad way of thinking about work, which is like everyone's a mercenary. Everyone's just out for themselves. And that has the benefit of you not being disappointed by what happens, but it has the downside of you can never build anything of meaning because you think everyone's a mercenary. You just see, uh, you see selfishness everywhere you go. And what you need is a middle ground, and that's what we call an alliance, where two people who have mutually overlapping interests come together, define a relationship where they're going to work together for some period of time to accomplish something. And if they accomplish that thing, hopefully they then team up and accomplish something else. I mean, we use the concept from Silicon Valley, but it also really applies to Hollywood, right? If you think about certain combinations of actors and directors who work with each other over and over again, that's really an alliance, right? Judd Apatow and Seth Rogen have worked together all these times because they're essentially allies. And Judd Apatow was looking out for Seth and so on and so forth, or, or Jason Siegel, or, or you name it. Um, and they've all gone on to work together consistently over the years and accomplish great things. You, you make a uh, great point in this book. I'd love if you could talk about it. It's with respect to job searches and speaking to ex-employees. Can you, can you speak on that? Absolutely. So one of the most overlooked assets in, uh, that anyone has is the alumni network of companies, uh, of former employees. And here's the reason. When people are judging your company, they're going to judge it based on the current employees and on the former employees. And in many cases, they'll pay more attention to the former employees because they're no longer there, they're unbiased, and they're able to make things happen. So as a result, your former employees are probably the most responsible for your employee brand. <coughs> in addition, when you are looking to work at a company, same thing. You want to figure out what the company's really like? Talk to the former employees. They don't have a dog in the fight anymore. If they're like, oh man, that was the best experience. That was a great company to have worked for. Then you know this is a great company to go to. If they're like, oh man, that sucked. I can't believe I did that. I mean, I got money out of it, but I'm never going to do that again, which by the way is what every person who's worked for Elon Musk says, uh, then you know that's not the place to go unless you are so into the mission and the money that you're like, you know what? I'm willing to accept that this is going to be something that I will regret later on, but I will regret even more if I don't do it. Yeah. You know, 2020 was an interesting time uh, with the, you know, great resignation. Um, as someone who, you know, wrote on employer-employee relationships, is there something that you take from this, you know, last couple of years? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing is the great resignation is largely the great reshuffling. Yeah, there are some baby boomers who are taking early retirement or choosing to retire, but all the young people who are resigning their jobs are not retiring. They're going to take other jobs, right? Unless they happen to be very early Bitcoin buyers or something. So as a result, it really is a great reshuffling, which means I've been telling companies the way you got to look at this is not as a matter of defense, i.e., how do I keep my employees from quitting, but as a matter of offense, i.e., how do I take advantage of this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get some of this talent that's currently up for grabs? 
And what you have to do is to do what we outline in the Alliance, which is to make your company an attractive employer by saying that working for your company is going to accelerate an employee's career. How, how did uh, the three of you get together to, to co-write? Yeah, so the, the way it works is that Reed and I and Ben and I both knew each other largely independently for a long time before writing the book. I had met Reed when he was starting LinkedIn. And so we'd known each other for a long time. I actually got Reed a speaking engagement, speaking to Harvard Business School alumni, because I was running the HBS Alumni and Tech Association, to tell them that they needed to sign up for LinkedIn. This was in a period of time when Harvard Business School alumni didn't know they needed to be on LinkedIn. Crazy enough. But wow. that was the very early days. Yeah. And it stayed in touch with Reed ever since, because obviously he's a really smart guy. And then I had met Ben Kaznoka when he was a 15-year-old because he was at the time a 15-year-old and an entrepreneur. He had his own enterprise software company, but he also was commenting on various blogs and writing his own. And this was in the early days when the world of blogging was so small that we all kind of knew each other. And so I got to know him. I was a joke that, you know, I don't know what his mom thought when he said, hey, I'm going to borrow the car and drive south to Palo Alto to meet my friend from the internet. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Sounds yeah. kind of dodgy, yeah. but you know, it worked out okay. And so Ben and I had worked together on all sorts of things. We run an intellectual discussion salon together and, and been friends for a long time as well. And then Ben came to me one day and said, hey, do you know Reed Hoffman? I said, yeah, I know Reed. Reed's a good guy. And Ben was like, yeah, Reed wanted to know if I wanted to write a book with him. I was like, well, you know, what are you thinking? He's like, oh, you know, I've already written the book. I'm not sure if I want to write a second book. I don't want to be pigeonholed as an author. I'm like, well, Ben, I don't know. Uh, how often has some legendary figure of Silicon Valley asked you to write a book with them? It's like, well, this is the first time. I'm like, seems like this is the kind of opportunity that doesn't come around very often. So they worked on the startup of you together, and I helped a bit with that. I was brought in as a consultant to help with the structure of the book. And then after that book came out and was successful, they asked me to come in and, and meet with them because at that point in time, Ben was not only Reed's co-author, he was also Reed's chief of staff because he told Reed, your life is a mess, you need a chief of staff. And Reed said, sounds good, why don't you do it? And Ben was like, well, I'll only do it for six months. And then two years later, he called me in. Anyways, <laughs> I go in to meet with them and they're like, hey, Startup U is doing really well. I'm like, yeah, I'm really excited about that. I mean, I don't get any royalties, but I feel great about it. And obviously I'm in the book, so I, I, want, I love it. I want to be successful for you guys. And they're like, we want to do some more writing. And we're wondering if you would join us to do that. And I said, well, it depends. There's only there's one question I got to ask. What's that? Does my name appear on the cover of whatever we write? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, okay, I'm in. And so that's how I ended up being called in because I was super familiar with the Star of You, having helped structure it. And then the Alliance, in many ways, was originally written as a response to the Startup of You. It's like, if the ideas of the startup of you become common among employees, how do you manage them? And like our original uh, original secret title was Corporate Startup of You or Startup of You for Corporations. And then of course, eventually it became the Alliance. It went through a couple of renditions. It was called the Employer-Employee Compact and all these other things. And eventually it became the Alliance. And we first wrote some essays that LinkedIn published and gave to their customers. Uh, we were able to convince Harvard Business Review to run a modified version of it. That was really popular. And then Harvard Business Review came to us and said, hey, can you create a book? And that's how we created the Alliance. 
and ended up being, a, like as you mentioned, a New York Times bestseller. I mean, it's still relevant today, even though it came out in 2014. I just gave a talk for a $100 billion corporation today to go over the ideas of the Alliance because they really wanted to implement it as the company is going through yet more hyper growth. And you know, I still end up talking with corporations on a regular basis about it. So it's a book that's had great staying power. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the co-writing, do you just do delegate? different chapters or how does that work? So we have, uh, so we had the Alliance and Blitzscaling and the way we did them was slightly different. Uh, when we worked on the Alliance, uh, and in all cases, and the reason why Reed and Ben asked me to work with them is because I'm one of the fastest writers that has ever lived. Uh, I don't know if I'm up to the level of a Balzac or somebody like that, but then again, I don't drink 50 cups of coffee a day. <laughs> yeah. But I write incredibly fast. I once wrote a white paper in 16 minutes. Um, I had essays that I wrote in college in 30 minutes. So I'm fast. Yeah. And so that's one of the things they wanted. They wanted, they're like this, we need someone who can actually do this. And so uh, when we write these books, I always tell people, people are like, oh, you write the books. I'm like, no, no, I do almost all the typing. That's not the same thing as writing the book. Like the writing of the book is not just getting the words on the paper, although that's a big part of it. It's also coming up with the ideas and structuring the ideas. And so for the, uh, for the Alliance, you know, I did most of the typing, but the way we do it is the three of us would get together and we'd discuss the ideas and I would take various notes that I'd go away and write a chapter. Then we'd come back together and look at the chapter together and discuss it further and see if it, you know, met with, uh, if, 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 it matched up with what people were thinking or what have you. And then once we had the chapter done, we'd go on to the next chapter. We'd discuss the ideas and, and so on and so forth. And we did something similar for Blitzscaling. I will just say that writing the Alliance was faster because Ben is a good taskmaster and would force us to actually stay on track. <laughs> and Reed and I are not as disciplined as Ben. And so when left to our own devices, we don't work as quickly as he does. Yeah. Um... You know, New York Times bestseller, that's that's something a lot of people uh, wish to be. You know, I'm, I'm curious, do you do you conceptualize that, that you are a New York Times bestselling author? How does that hit you? So, of course, it feels good. The main benefit is just, you know, it sounds cool, right? Once you're a New York Times bestselling author, whenever people introduce you, they're going to say, unless, you know, like, for example, people didn't introduce Theodore Roosevelt as New York Times bestselling author Theodore Roosevelt, and just yeah. President Theodore Roosevelt, yeah. right? So unless you do something like become president, that's how you're going to be introduced. And it's really cool. Uh, I do tell people, listen, I don't take that much credit for it, right? I mean, if you're going to become a New York Times bestselling author, having a co-author who is a world-famous billionaire and legend helps a lot. Let's face it, it helps a lot. People are more likely to pick up the book. Uh, so I don't take credit for being a best-selling author, but I do take credit for making sure that we put out some pretty darn good books. Yeah. Um, Blitzscaling, again, was a, a terrific book. Uh, there's, there's a lot that goes on um, and that you, know, you guys talk about, obviously. Um, first, maybe, you know, I guess for you, are there like couple of takeaways that you would, um, you know, give to the audience um, that they can then look into more detail on? Absolutely. So this is the core of blitzscaling in 90 seconds. The reason blitzscaling matters, and we define blitzscaling as the pursuit of rapid growth by prioritizing speed over efficiency. 
It is because the internet has connected us all together and those dynamics have created more winner-take-most markets. So when you have a winner-take-most market, that's usually because of network effects, which means that whoever gets to scale first builds up this tremendous competitive advantage. And when you have these winner-take-most markets, whoever wins the market dominates for decades and prints money after that. That's why these companies are worth so much. That's why Amazon and Apple and Google are $1 trillion companies. And so because of this phenomenon, which is post, a post-internet phenomenon, increasingly, if you want to build a great company, you got to learn how to blitz scale. Now, the key is you got to make sure you have that actual blitz scalable opportunity. Are there network effects? Is there a reason it's truly a winner-take-most market? And then for that particular company, is it the one that's in the lead? Does it have a distribution advantage that will allow it to grow faster than the competition? If those things are satisfied, then it's a blitz scaling opportunity and pursuing that all out growth is probably the best strategy. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there, I think, do you want to talk about maybe, I, I thought what was interesting is that you found growing into other markets was something that you saw with a lot of um, companies that blitz scaled. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So when you think about companies, it's very rare that a company is a true one-trick pony. Right? You can't just focus on one thing and expect that to carry you to a trillion dollars. Obviously, there are important ponies for Apple. It's the iPhone, for Google, it's the search and the AdWords. But there's so many other components to their business, right? Apple has the iTunes Store, Apple has the Mac, Apple has the iCloud, and Google has not just you know, the search, but also G Suite and Google Cloud and all these different things. So what companies have to do if you're going to end up becoming one of these, you know, iconic companies is you can't be content with just one success. You got to find additional successes because each product rides an S curve. It starts off slow, then it really ramps up and grows, and then eventually it starts to level off. And when it starts to level off, if you want to keep growing, you got to find another S curve. And so if you look at Apple, it's like, let's ride the Apple II, let's ride the Macintosh, let's ride the iPod, let's ride the iPhone, let's ride different generations of the iPhone, let's ride the iTunes Store, let's ride the iPad, and so on and so forth. You can't just have one S-curve. Yeah. The, the metrics and the dashboard were another point you made. I'm curious, you know, how does a company that's looking to grow is there a way to determine what the right metrics are for the dashboard or is that kind of luck of the draw? Well, it's not luck of the draw, but it is going to be defined by the company, right? So each company is going to have a different set of metrics. All I can do is give you some general guidelines. So you should pick a metric that is easily measurable so that you're not going to spend all your time arguing about whether or not the measurement is accurate. That's just a pointless waste of time. And it should be something which is not just a trailing indicator, but a leading indicator. Because the thing is, you can have all these trailing indicators, right? At the end of the day, the most important metric as a trailing indicator is the cash flow of the company. But by the time you get to that point, it's too late. You're making decisions too slowly. There's this concept from aerial combat of the OODA loop, right? And the idea of the OODA loop is make decisions faster than your enemy. Get inside the enemy's OODA loop. And if you do that, then you're able to succeed and you're going to win and they're going to lose. 
Well, if you are relying on trailing metrics, you're never going to get inside the other guys of the loop. So you have to figure out some leading metrics that are going to tell you, right? If the ultimate metric is cash flow, that's based on customer retention. Customer retention is based on engagement. Engagement is going to be based on the frequency intensity of usage. So all these things, you got to think it through and figure out what leading indicators you can find that are going to help you make decisions more quickly. And then also recognize that those leading indicators may change. Something that's the right leading indicator now may not be the right leading indicator in the future. You have to accept that whatever you build could potentially change underneath you. And so always be thinking, not just saying, okay, once I've thought and made this one decision, I can rely on it like a religion from now on. No, you always got to keep thinking. For companies growing at this speed, you know, in terms of culture, as you're hiring so fast, that can be tough. Um, how do you look at that that problem of maintaining good culture as you're you know growing quarter to quarter so fast? Well, you've got to have a strong culture because culture is how you get scalable decision making. If you don't have a good strong culture, then you are either stuck with the founder making decisions, which is not scalable, or you have a whole bunch of rules which don't adapt to the situation. And so culture is a way to make decisions when there isn't enough information for a rule to apply. And that's why it's so important. Now to build that culture, you've got to actually make that culture explicit. Otherwise, how are you going to be able to effectively convey it to people? It's like trying to teach something you can't explain. That's not going to work. You've got to come up with an explicit definition of the culture, put it on the wall, and make sure that you're talking about it all the time. Jeff Weiner, the former CEO of LinkedIn, had a saying, which is, by the time you're sick of saying something, that's when it's just starting to sink in with people. And so you got to keep repeating over and over again, here's what we care about, here's our culture. Now, one of the things about culture, again, I always make sure I mention this, is that you also have to think about culture as cultural addition, not cultural fit. When people talk about cultural fit, it's like, let's hire more people who are exactly the same as the ones we already have. It's a terrible idea. What you need to think instead is when we hire new people, they're adding to our overall culture. What are the new ingredients? What are the new flavors that we need to bring in to make this stew even better, to make it more complex, to make it richer and deeper? Yeah. In uh, 2018, you were a founding partner of Blitzscaling Ventures. Um, do you want to tell us about your experience as a venture capitalist, maybe Best investment, worst investment, you know, any lessons you've learned in, in investing in companies? So the idea behind Blitzscaling Ventures is pretty straightforward. We invest in the best companies and the best venture capitalists that are Blitzscaling. And it's very simple to say, but it's a little harder to do. We have to look at the principles of Blitzscaling and identify which deals are actually Blitzscalable. And then we need to convince the CEOs to let us into those deals. Because at the end of the day, those deals are the hardest to get into. Everyone wants to be in. Those CEOs have no shortage of people offering them money. Their issue is not getting people to give them money. Their issue is picking whose money to take. And so we have to make sure they pick us. And the pitch to them is very straightforward. You are going through blitzscaling and hypergrowth. Wouldn't you like to have the direct advice of the guy who wrote the book? And usually that's pretty compelling. Now, it's been a long process, right? We started this process off. We weren't sure exactly how to structure the fund. All the things I just said, which sounds so logical, are things we had to figure out by trying different stuff along the way. 
What stage are we going to invest in? What kinds of companies are we going to invest in? How are we going to determine whether or not something split scalable? All of those are things that we had to work out. And then when we worked those things out, we actually had to go raise the fund. We raised this fund almost entirely during the pandemic. And that's actually by choice. So we had started to raise money before, uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic. We realized we couldn't raise money during those first few months. Everything was too up in the air. But then we came back and I said, guys, now is the time to raise money because unlike any other time in history, we can get LPs to give us money without physically visiting them. So now what we do is instead of the standard investment strategy, which is we're going to go and visit people in Silicon Valley and LA and Boston and New York, we're going to raise money from them because they're the places we're familiar with and have major airports. Instead, we're going to raise money from Brazil. We're going to raise money from Hong Kong. We're going to raise money from Sydney and Melbourne. We're going to raise money from Sao Paulo. And we have LPs from all around the world on pretty much every continent. We still need to raise up. We need to find an African LP, but we've almost got all the continents covered. Yeah. And that's because we raised money during the pandemic. And it was a tremendous amount of work. We had done hundreds of meetings, but it's a lot easier when you don't have to fly to the meetings. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there any advice you would give to people pitching you? So the advice I would give is be very concise. I think that people sometimes feel like as they're telling a story, they can sort of like convince me with the volume of words. You don't need a lot of words to convince me. You just need the right words. And that means telling the story very clearly and articulating, for me at least, what I'm looking for. And I will tell them up front. I want to understand what kind of market you have. Do you have good product market fit? Have you figured out how to make money? Have you figured out how to scale up the operations? And most importantly, tell me why this is a winner-take-most market and tell me how you're going to win it. And if they tell me those things, then I can make a decision. And I help entrepreneurs with pitches all the time, and they very rarely do the right thing, which is they, they should what they should do is they should talk about, here's the market, here's what we're trying to do, here are all the benefits that we have, here's how we make it work, here's why our team is the right team to do this, and here are the results we expect. And oftentimes they don't do enough to highlight the team or when they have the team, they don't highlight what's special about the team. It's like they're being modest. I'm like, no, tell me why your team is awesome. Show me all the incredible companies you worked on, all the incredible products you put out. Chris, you know, this is a little bit of a deep question, but you know, you uh, off, off before we were recording, you told me, you know, you had 13 things today, started at 6.30 you've had a, you know, you know, you've got your founding partner of this venture firm, you're a New York Times bestselling author, you know, um, you've, you're a father, you've had a lot of professional success. What is it that motivates you daily? You know, what, what is it that is the reason you're getting up at 630 doing 13 different things? Is it like, is there a certain money amount? Is there, is it the game? Is it, what, what is it that at this point um, that's motivating you for life? Excellent question. So there's a couple things I'll say. The first is that today is an unusual day. Most of my days do not start at 6.30 a.m. I try not to do meetings until around 8 a.m. for the most part. And most of my days do not last with meetings until, well, today I have a dinner meeting after this and another meeting I'm missing, but I'm okay with that because this is important. And so I'm going to end up with 15 or 16 meetings today. 
that's an unusually heavy day. So first of all, it's usually not like that. But the motivation behind it is the same thing that's been motivating me for quite some time. In the book, The Startup Review, one of the things that my friends Ben and Reed talk about is the importance of having a personal mission statement. And in fact, before The Startup Review did this, and possibly in part because of me, I had already created my personal mission statement and gone on the record with what it was. And I said, my personal mission is to help interesting people do interesting things. And I count myself as very lucky that there's so many interesting and talented people in this world who are doing so many things that I could never even have conceived of. And I feel privileged to have the chance to help them, whether as an investor or advisor or just somebody they can bounce ideas off of. And that's entrepreneurs, that's executives at some of the biggest companies in the world, that's students at undergraduate institutions, it's all these people, nonprofits, you name it. I have a very broad set of interests, authors. And what they all have in common is I'm doing and talking with people who I think are interesting. Now, when you do that, Again, sometimes the hours are long. Somebody asked me, can you count how much you work? I'm like, I don't really know, right? I can count out, I can count up a number of things which I can absolutely tell you are definitely work and that adds up to something. But then there's all these other things that, you know, is it work or is it not work? It's not entirely clear. Uh, people also say it sometimes, oh, when do you think you'll retire? I'm like, why would I ever retire, right? I have various jobs, if you want to call them that, that allow me to talk with some of the smartest, most accomplished, most ambitious, most impactful people in the world. And I get to talk to them, and sometimes it's an audience and they applaud, sometimes it's a meeting and I get to learn something new. Why would I ever want to stop doing that? As long as I have enough time to get enough sleep during the day, at night, and by the way, one of my tricks is I take naps during the day. I took a nap uh, about three o'clock to make sure I had enough energy to get through all these things. But as long as I have the opportunity to do these interesting things and talk to these amazing people, why would I want to stop? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, you mentioned it in there, but you know, as I was doing research, you know, for you in this interview, I, there was easily like at least thirty talks on YouTube that you've done. You're, you know, a professional speaker. Is there something that you've learned uh, in terms of? your speaking career that you can, uh, you know, give to someone who's just starting out? So specifically in terms of speaking, in terms of the business of speaking, the thing you have to remember is that Rome wasn't built in a day and you have to build to it over time. So I was delivering various talks and they were almost all for free before I became an author. I would just give talks here in Silicon Valley. I'd volunteer to moderate panels and do all these different things just in order to build relationships and credibility and reputation. And then when I wrote the book, fortunately, my friend Ben Kaznoka, who was also my co-author, had already been doing this. And so he was able to share with me, hey, here's what you're going to need to do. Or my friend Franz Johansson, the author of The Medici Effect and The Click Moment, shared with me, hey, here's what I had to do. It's like, if you want to be a professional public speaker, you got to start from the ground up and you got to go and do whatever free talks you have to do. Then when somebody offers to pay you, no matter how small and pathetic the amount is, you take it and you speak because the number one way that you get more speaking business is by speaking because people see you and say, I want that at my organization. So I gave free talks. Uh, I gave, I, you may see some of them online. One of the first talks about 
the Alliance is the Boston Children's Hospital talk. It's up there on YouTube and it was done for free, right? They don't pay any travel. I happen to be in Boston in order to spend time with my family. We're doing an East Coast trip. And it was like, while I'm there, give this talk for free. It's prestigious, you should do it. And that's what I did. The very first talk I got paid for, I gave, got $500 to drive down to Monterey, which is like an hour and a half away, to talk for the Monterey County Human Resources Association. And I went there, not because I needed $500 for driving down and then driving back, but because I needed to demonstrate that I had the goods. And I got them excited and wowed them, and they told other people, and that led to other things. I once gave a talk at the Santa Clara Public Santa Clara County Public Library for $200. Why? Because they asked, because I needed to build my reputation. Now, of course, when I go and I speak, I can charge people $25,000. That's a big difference from $200. But to do that, I had to work my way up. It was $200 and then $500. I was excited the first time someone offered me $2,000. Then someone offered me $5,000, like, oh my God. Then $8,000 and then $10,000 and slowly working my way up. And it's because people are like, wow, when this guy comes to speak, he's going to get the crowd excited. People are going to be entertained. They're going to feel like they got something out of it. He's going to be a pleasure to work with, and he's going to be reliable. And so that's how you build a speaking career. You have to really love it. I have a lot of friends who are authors. It's crazy, right? Authors make a lot of their money off of speaking. I have friends who are authors who are like, I'm an introvert. I have to psych myself up before every speaking engagement. I sit in my hotel room, and I dread going out there. I'm like, wow, what a terrible life. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited when I go out on stage. I'm like, yes, a new audience. And so I think that that's the attitude you should have. If you can have fun when you speak, if you can involve the audience, if you can be interactive, if they can see you're a real person, not somebody who's just like a, a robot who's playing a script. It's like you, you put the tape in and you press the play button. Then people are going to enjoy it. They're going to react well, and it's going to lead to more business. Yeah. Well, Chris, we, we've talked about quite a bit. Was there, was there something you wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to? So I want to leave with some advice for people. And this is a broad advice, which is one of the most important things you can do is to build up your self-awareness. You got to be honest with yourself in all things. You heard this come out a couple of times as I was talking, like when my first company really didn't go anywhere. And I would just be honest and say, I'm an unemployed bum. Like whenever you go in life, one of the things that causes the most stress is when you refuse to accept and acknowledge reality. Now, just because you acknowledge reality doesn't mean you have to say, and it's always going to be this way. But the first step to changing reality is saying, here's what it is right now, and here's where I want it to be. Therefore, these are the things I'm going to change. If you deny that reality, you're not going to take the steps that are necessary to change it. I see people who are in denial all the time. Their lives do not get better. Never be in a state of denial. Acknowledge what is really happening. Decide on the world you want and then make the changes and take the actions necessary to get to that world. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Uh, Chris, if, if people want to support you, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, of course, what they should do is they should go to chrisye.com C-H-R-I-S-Y-E-H.com. That's the clearinghouse for all things Chris Ye. If you want to have me come and speak, you can go to my speaking page on that website, fill out the form, let me know. Uh, if you are someplace like a, a nonprofit or you're doing something for a good cause, you can't afford people, that's okay. 
still reach out to me anyways. If I can do it, I'll do it. On the other hand, if you normally pay people and you're like, well, how about if we just get you for free, even though we pay people, I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't do this just for the money. But if you're paying someone else, you got to pay me too. It's only fair. And then you can also follow me on social media. You can follow me on Twitter. You can follow me on LinkedIn. You can follow me on Facebook. For the most part, it's just Chris Yeh everywhere you go. On Facebook, it happens to be HBS Chris because I signed up for Facebook a long time ago and probably another Chris Yeh had signed up. The final note is that there are multiple Chris Yeh's. One of my friends, the other Chris Yeh, he may call me the other Chris Yeh for all I know, <laughs> uh, is a really cool guy. He used to be the head of product at Box, the publicly traded company. He currently runs a startup called Content Groove. He's uh, like a really super duper accomplished violinist. He's like played a Stradivarius before. I suck at the violin. I, I played the violin just to get into college and I dropped it the instant I could. So he's also a very talented guy. But the way you can tell the difference is I wear glasses and he doesn't. So if you see a Chris Ye who's not wearing glasses, it's not actually me. Yeah. One, one more if I can. Absolutely. You, you seem very level-headed. Do you, do you have a lot of regrets or any regrets that you have in life? Um, you know, I'm lucky enough not to have a lot of regrets. I mean, are there things that I wish were different? Well, I tore my Achilles tendon a couple of years ago. If I could have gone back and not played in that particular game of basketball, <laughs> yeah. I would have done that. Yeah. Or alternately, you know, I often tell people, listen, don't think that I'm some sort of genius. When I was in, when I was at, in the Bay Area, uh, one of the things that happened was I was invited to a launch party for a company. And I was like, I'm not going to go to this launch party. This company is going nowhere. They're wasting their money on a launch party. That company was Google. And it happens to be that I know the guy who was the second employee. And ironically enough, my wife, one of my wife's friends was the first employee at Google and they're all billionaires now. And I couldn't bring myself to take myself away from my work for one night to go to Google's launch party. Would I have met Larry and Sergey and said, oh my God, I got to drop everything and join this company? I don't know, probably not. But could it have happened? Absolutely. Would I like to be a billionaire? I think that would be pretty cool. But you know what? Those are regrets, but they're not big regrets. They're regrets where I'm like, hey, you know what? It still worked out okay in the end. Yeah. Well, Chris, I, I just want to acknowledge you and thank you for being on. Um, just learned so much, you know, in terms of being a, a child prodigy, in terms of, you know, understanding corporate versus entrepreneurship, um, you know, what you took out of your MBA. Uh, the beautiful part for me also was just learning your personal life revelations and making sure you know i think reed hastings talks about this too but like just making sure that your personal life was always good and you know and also balancing out you know your professional ambitions um you know i love the books that you have written um for anyone that's looking for employer employee relationships or you know you know scaling up a company um there's so many different things that we didn't talk about management structure, you know, data over opinion, don't cut corners, what not to do. There's so many things um, that you can learn product market fit from these businesses or from these books. Um, and yeah, Chris, thank you for the couple hours here and for, for sharing um, your life knowledge with all of us. No, it was my pleasure. Listen, it's seldom that I have a person who's interviewing me who's done that much research, who really goes deep on everything. 
We got a chance to talk today about a lot of stuff I normally don't talk about. Not that I'm unwilling to talk about, it's just people don't ask me. And I really appreciate the way you were able to draw out so many different elements of my life. Lord knows this is so long, you're probably going to have to split it into three parts, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. I will look forward to it coming out, and I hope that people got something out of it. I hope they come away from it saying, hey, I learned a few things. Uh, I got some things I might do differently in the future, and hey, you know, hopefully I like that guy and we'll follow him and, and tell people you should have him come and speak. Yeah, no, I, I learned a lot from the books, so definitely recommend them. Thank you again, Chris. My pleasure.